Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasize about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as prime minister, foreign secretary, chancellor, or home secretary. But have you ever had that thought, but with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party. That's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party. And get your free case of eight beers. And you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack, and if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. You can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability and you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com slash party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Political Party featuring Margaret Beckett. I've just finished recording this episode and just am beaming at what a treat it was to spend that time in the presence of someone with such phenomenal political experience and someone who is still playing a leading role in British politics. It is so rare to have had the career that Margaret Beckett has had. And I feel very similar to how I felt after interviewing Michael Heseltine. When people stay in politics for so long and amass that amazing experience of, of, of different leaders of periods in government and opposition, different periods in government and opposition... They see so much of politics from a from a top level. They know what it takes. That gives them a unique perspective. And just as Michael Heseltine um, was able to give that from the Conservative point of view, this feels like the Labour equivalent, that long view, that, that wisdom amassed over years and years and years at a senior level. And at a senior level, because Margaret Beckett is one of the most talented politicians the country has ever produced. And has her own style and, and all this comes through. So this is a phenomenal collection of, of insight, of story, of reflection, of wisdom. So many great things. Uh, and I'm just... Oh, man. It, every episode of this is a treat to me. And making them during lockdown has been especially true. Although I do miss doing them live. I think there's something really special about making these in front of a live audience. But the, these amazing people... Give their time freely to chew it over, to answer any question I might come up with and give us the benefit. Share with us all the benefit of that of that top level political experience is just for an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. I, I was just in a different world. I was just right there with Margaret Beckett with John Smith, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown in the corridors of power. You know, just... There's so much in this. Um, I really hope you enjoy it. 
uh, as much as I enjoyed uh, making it because it's just, Margaret Beckett is just this. This is just great. Um, you can email the show with any reflections you might have, any guest suggestions. Political Party Podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, always let me know where you listen. Uh, Richard got in touch. Um, he said uh, thank you for a fascinating listen this morning as I journey around a static M twenty five. Well, Richard, I have barely left the flat during uh, this last year so <laughs> it sounds as if they're actually if you're on the m25 you're probably more stationary than i've been so uh, commiserations if you're still out there somewhere in the darkness um he said i had to share my similar should have sat on my hands first labor ward meeting to the one that dave roundtree uh, told him we had some fantastic messages about having dave on the show a very popular guest uh, anyway richard says it was the bellenden ward at the dulwich and west norwood constituency uh, bored with shouting at the TV on Question Time on a Thursday night, he was invited to attend. There were 210 members in the ward, 12 of them attended, and poor old Richard, he said he, he hadn't realised the positions were not really up for re-election, and he walked away as Secretary, Distribution Officer and GC Delegate. Well, by all means, please share your um, <laughs> your first political experience stories. Email them to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. It's time now to enter just the, this amazing... It's not a time capsule because Margaret Beckett is still a, a senior politician in, in British politics and has a, a senior role. Um, but so much of this obviously is uh, is Labour history and, it, and it's just magical. Um, I began by, by addressing this with Margaret and said she's had so many top-level jobs it was hard to know where to start. But I began really with an observation as much as a question. She's probably the most experienced politician in the country. Oh, no, no I don't think that's quite fair. There are, there are other people around. But um, maybe still active, one of the more experienced in the Labour Party, certainly. I mean, there can't be many people in Parliament whose CV comes anywhere close to yours. You know, you think about even that first government job as, as a whip for Harold Wilson. You know, you you, you span so many different eras. I, I try not to overdo it, although I'm sure I do. But I must admit, I do occasionally take a mild amount of satisfaction in saying something like, well, when I came to work for the Labour Party in 1970 to a room full of people who weren't even born <laughs> in 1970. <laughs> It just goes to show, I mean, surviving in politics and enduring in politics is really hard. And I remember interviewing Charles Clark years ago, and he was, mm. he was reflecting on the reputation of Tony Benn. And he said, well, everyone's a national treasure if they live long enough. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel you've achieved national treasure status yet? No, I don't feel that, but I, I do take his point, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's so many places where we could start, but I, I didn't want to do it entirely chronologically. There are some really interesting moments in your career that I thought it would be great to sort of start off with. First one being becoming deputy leader of the Labour Party in, in 1992. And it, it, just in the aftermath of that 1992, it is, it's a shame to talk about defeat. But I guess if we're talking about Labour politics, there's, there's, there are a fair few to kind of pour over. It, yes. <laughs> but in 1992 in that election... You're one of the major players for Labour in that. You're 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 the trade, the industry spokesperson. That's a really big brief to be holding when the economy is such a big issue for Labour for for trying to win over Conservative voters. So much analysis about that 1992 campaign and the things that went right, the things that went wrong. Did you at any point in 1992 deep down think Labour were going to win? I'll be perfectly honest. It it was a mixture. On the one hand, um, it, it looked as if and it felt, felt as if 
potentially we could win. Um, and then you looked at the list of seats that we had to win to do so. And you kind of thought, hmm, don't know about that. Um, but of course, the opinion polls were completely wrong. The opinion polls um, had, had completely misread. I think what it was is they, they make a judgment about um, where to put the people who say they don't know or they don't seem to want to say. And they got that judgment totally wrong. I mean, there are so many exercises since Brexit being one of them where how pollsters, you're absolutely right, categorise people that aren't sure or aren't sure if they're going to vote seems to be crucial in really understanding the mood of the country. Um, so Labour sadly lose in 1992. I mean, it's really hard now knowing what happens next where Labour then have this sort of glorious period in, in government. But in the aftermath of that election, there were people who genuinely thought Labour would never win again. Were you one of them? No, I, I wasn't. In fact, I was very, our, our then agent, who was a lovely man, actually, and who I was very fond of, um, actually said, you know, Labour will never win again. I was furious. I didn't, I didn't tear a strip off him, but I, I was livid because um, I, I didn't believe it. Uh, but I, I will tell you one thing. Um, when we were elected, John and I, because um, we'd been the Treasury the centre bit of the Treasury team. Uh, and we were looking forward to the to the party conference. And we were concerned it would be a bloodbath, you know, not assuming, hoping it wouldn't be, but, you know, what's going to happen? Are we, are we all going to get completely hammered? And then, of course, um, and I said this, I said this in the PLP after the 2019 election. If you look at what happened, the difference between where we were on election day in 1992 and where we were a few months later, the world was completely transformed because the, you know, the, the uh, Tories had taken us into the exchange rate mechanism and they fell out of it, um, which was spectacularly bad news economically. And so by the time we got to party conference, so we're talking about from sort of June to September, Everybody could see that we told the truth about the economy and the Tories had told a pack of lies about the state of the economy, which, of course, they hoped if they were elected to be able to cover up, but they couldn't. Um, and, and I said that to the PLP, uh, as I say, in, in January, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Something can be around the corner. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not envisaging the circumstances we're in now. No, uh... Uh, John Smith becomes the leader of the Labour Party in 1992. You become his deputy. So you, you stand for the deputy leadership in 1992. You beat John Prescott. Mm. Um, uh, and you beat Brian Gould, who stands for the deputy and for the leadership. Mm. Uh, something that you would do as well. And we'll come to that. So at that point in 1992, it's not uh, sort of inconceivable that for you, you think, well, I'll stand for the deputy leadership. And then obviously you do stand for the leadership in, in two years after that. At that point, you're a pretty ambitious senior member of Labour's front bench. You know, at that point, you must have thought it wasn't inconceivable that within the coming years, you'd end up leading Labour yourself. To be honest, that didn't cross my mind at that moment in time. But there's one thing that you probably don't know, and John Prescott will probably never forgive me for saying this, but I actually didn't want to be the deputy leader. It's a terrible job. And, and I'd seen I'd seen Roy Hattersley going around, you know, being the person who was stuck on the television at two o'clock in the morning after every terrible by-election and going around to every dog hanging there was and so on. And I was like, oh, you know. And, and um, I mean, what happened was that 
the BBC got hold of, of I, I'm, I don't know whether it was a guess or whatever, but anyway, they put out a story saying that John and I were running as a team for leader and deputy leader. And we weren't at all. We yeah. hadn't discussed it. And as I said, I didn't, I didn't want to be. I hadn't thought about being deputy leader. Um, and so I, we rang the BBC and said, you know, you've got this completely wrong. Because what was worrying me was if some, somebody else became the deputy leader and John had to work with them and they thought they weren't John's choice, that would not be good. That was not a good way to start. So I wanted to knock it on the head straight away. No, no, we're not running as a, as a, as a team. Um, and uh, so that happened. And then uh, my phone rang a little while later and it was one of my parliamentary colleagues. I won't name him um, to preserve his innocence. But uh, and he said, um, you know, this uh, leadership thing, I heard it on the BBC. And I said, yeah, yeah, I told the BBC, you know, they, they got it wrong. I'm, we're not running. I'm not running for the deputy leadership. And he said, that's why I've rung you, because what I want to know is why not? And after that, the phone just kept going and going and going. All sorts of senior figures in the party and so on, all saying, what do you mean you're not running for the day? Why aren't you running to be the deputy leader? So in the end, on the Monday morning, I went into the office and John and I had offices opposite each other. Um, and John came in and he said, uh, I've come to tell you that you've got to run to be deputy leader, but I gather you've already decided to do it. <laughs> but he so says this... So no, I didn't get down to thinking about being leader. I was, you know, sufficiently sort of, oh dear, do I have to do this? You've, I mean, it seems to me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the history of the Labour Party and the present of the Labour Party is so bogged down in, in factions and cliques and sides and wings, you've always had, it seems, a unique gift for, for staying out of all that. I mean, is, was that a conscious decision on your part? I don't know. I mean, oh dear, sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> Saved by the bell. Yeah, oh, and it's actually the call I ought to take. Is that all right with you? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. No, no worries at all. The occasional interruptions uh, understandable these days. In the olden days, I'd have joked that that was Millbank on the phone there, Margaret. <laughs> well, funnily enough, it was close to it. <laughs> it is a, a Labour Party thing I'm trying to, I'm trying to help organise. Or... Getting stuck with with doing it because I'm the person who's got the re the relevant phone number. I'll put this on silent. Before we come on to New Labour and Millbank and that whole thing, um, the thing I was asking you was about how you'd always seem to manage to stay above all the different yeah, clans and cliques oh. and wings and things. Well, I don't know that everybody would. <laughs> I don't know that everybody in the Labour Party would agree with that. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I was immensely flattered many years ago when um, when the National Executive Committee was different from how it is now. And there was a women's section that was elected by the whole conference and the unions and so on all together. Um, and there were various of us in competition. And I remember one of my colleagues uh, who is who would be pleased to be described as a right winger um, who was campaigning for uh, other candidates. And uh, I heard that he was telling uh, delegates who were committed to vote for me or for Claire Short that, it, you know, not to, but if they had to, because that was the mandate, mandate from their constituency, they should vote for Claire Short because I was much more trouble. Immensely <laughs> <laughs> flattered. Claire would have been deeply insulted. I was very flattered. <laughs> that must have been a while ago now. Well, it was a while ago, yes. But um, so what I was about to say before I thought of that was, um, I mean, I was in the Tribune group from the beginning, 
And uh, when I was re-elected in 1983, I joined the campaign group and, and with a whole lot of people from the, you know, the old Tribune group like Joe Richardson and so on, we were in the campaign group for a while. And then unfortunately, the campaign group decided that they, they wanted to run Tony Benn as a candidate against Neil. And we thought that was a really bad idea. So, a, a, you know, half a dozen or so of us left and, and, and got a, a, a different grouping to, to meet and talk about politics from time to time, you know. Um, so I was, I was always, um, I always regarded myself as being on the left and I was usually regarded as being on the left by other people. And uh, some people said soft left, some people said center left, um, some people said hard line. Um, uh, but, you know, people put you in different boxes according to their convenience. You, may, you yourself probably don't necessarily change all that much, but you moved about the, the, about the scene. Um, but if, if uh, I don't seem to have got involved in, in faction fighting, I'm glad. And do you think, I mean, the, the sort of old cliches, even for people not involved in politics, that people drift right as they go through life or that people mellow? Um, obviously, a lot of Labour people of your generation went on a journey from, from the left to perhaps closer to the centre. Do you feel that your views changed at all? Did, did you ever feel a mellowing politically? I mean, my views about Europe changed, but then that's because Europe changed. I mean, dramatically from when I campaigned against us joining to when I campaigned for us staying in, um, unsuccessfully on both occasions. Um, but, um, well, Melanie Phillips interviewed me. I don't quite remember when. It's some years ago now. But, I mean, I've, uh, it's it's in th that, that this part of my life when, you know, a lot of people had, had moved, as you say. Um, and she had interviewed me as a, a, a junior minister under Harold Wilson, um, you know, many in the 70s. Um, and she, one of the first things she said to me was, um, well, I've been reading, you know, all these years about um, stories about how you've changed and all this kind of thing. She said, I've been looking at it and it doesn't seem to me that you've changed particularly at all. She said, you know, it seems to me you're very much the person that you were when I interviewed you all those years ago with very similar views to the ones that you held then. So how do you account for the fact that in the meantime, you've been, you know, described as hard left and all kinds of things? You know, ask other people is the only answer to that. So I don't think I'm wrong in thinking that I've been pretty consistent on the whole in my views. Um, but obviously what you can... I've, I've always been very keen to, to move as far as you possibly can in the direction you want to go in. But sometimes that means you've got to accept you're not going to go all the way. But how much can we get? Get as much as you can. It's a very pragmatic view that, um, I mean, it's not just a Labour issue. Many politicians in, in many political parties could, could learn a little from. Well, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you one interesting thing, which you almost certainly don't know because it got pretty, almost no publicity at the time. But I mean, um, I, I didn't join CND when I was a teenager because everybody was doing it. it was fashionable and I never really liked doing what was fashionable. But I did join the C CND and I was in it for a long time until I became of the, I, it seemed to me CND had gone pacifist and I've never been a pacifist. Uh, it'd be nice to be, but I'm not. Um, and so uh, at that point, I sort of let my subscription lapse. But I'm very pleased and proud of the fact that almost the last thing I did and on the last weekend of being foreign secretary, 
was to commit the then government to the pursuit of uh, complete nuclear disarmament, multilateral nuclear, because when I was in my teens, multilateral nuclear disarmament seemed completely impossible. You know, it was regarded as a get out. It meant you didn't really mean it. But by then we'd had all kinds of disarmament moves. But I was able as foreign secretary to commit, uh, and we were the first government, because it was before Obama spoke, we were the first um, nuclear arm, government of a nuclear armed country to commit to um, the pursuit of full nuclear disarmament while in office. Lots of people made the commitments when they'd left office or before they were in office, but this was the, this was the first time. And, and everybody was behind it, Tony and Gordon and so on. At that point in time, um, it was thought that we might make real progress that year at the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference. But in the end, it didn't come to anything. But, you know, so it seems to me that's a degree of, of political consistency. Well, and it's also a huge personal success. I mean, there are very few politicians that can point to even small things on the statute book that they influenced. That's something that in time may... You know, be something that saves the planet. Well, let's hope so. But I think I think probably my greatest political success must have been to be the Secretary of State who introduced the national minimum wage, because everybody else did it. I mean, if you look at people's um, by the number of people who say it was their proudest achievement <laughs> was to introduce the national minimum wage, I, I won't name any names. <laughs> but it must have been my greatest achievement. Well, I was going to ask you about that because it's huge. And it's one of the earliest founding pledges of the Labour Party. I mean, it, it, our first, first manifesto. There's two about things. 97 years about, before you implemented it. One of the things, there are lots of things people don't want to hear about the Blair government. But one of them is that in that very first manifesto, we committed ourselves to get rid of hereditary peers. Yep. And we committed ourselves to a min national minimum wage. And, and through the whole history of the Labour Party, that happened in the Blair government. Who'd have thought and, it? And by the way, I did both of them. Led, well, led, <laughs> legislatively, both of them were me. Me and, me and others, obviously. I mean, um, uh, there were a lot of people involved in the in the Lord's thing. And, and when it came to the, the minimum wage, Ian McCartney was the man who did all the spade work. Um, but I, I did the politics at the end without which it would not have come out the way it did. Well, there are two great things to talk about. Just... While we were on kind of security issues and uh, left-wing histories, I remember around 1997, even though I was at school, they may have been apocryphal tales of Labour ministers coming into government and discovering that MI5 had files on them and would they or would they not? Was Jack Straw going to look at his? Do you ever know if there was a file on you? And if so, were you ever able to peek at it? I, I've no idea. I never asked, actually. Um, I, didn't, I didn't particularly care. Um, so, no, I don't know. I don't well, know. As, as, as chair of the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy, you, you may be able to have a peek now. Well, I, I don't No, I don't think that's the remit of my committee. When I was, <laughs> when I was chair of the Intelligence and Security uh, Committee, I might have asked, I suppose, or indeed when I was, um, well, I was never responsible for MI5. It was MI6 that you were responsible for in the Foreign Office. Um, but uh, no, and uh, I'm, I'm not. I suppose it'd be interesting. I don't. I've never looked at my entry on Wikipedia either. I think I, if I would get too upset about the inaccuracies and want to change things, so I think just leave it alone. 
I mean, that shows remarkable personal restraint, particularly for a politician. You know, there's so much out there about you. How have you never succumbed to temptation and had a quick look? Well, I, I'm such a, I have such a passion for accuracy that it would drive me crazy if people kept saying things that they were complete rubbish. Well, I had to look at, you know what, I had to look at your Wikipedia page earlier, and I, I didn't know you'd won the 100 metres in the 1992 Olympics. I mean, I, I was going to come on to that. That's what I mean. <laughs> well, it's fine if the inaccuracies are positive, I suppose. It's only the ones that um, are perhaps less so. But, I, you know, I did have a look. It didn't seem to me that there was anything wild on there. So if that is a note of reassurance you can take some comfort from, then so be it. Um but those two things, as you say, the minimum wage and the House of Lords reform, founding principles. You know, the Labour Party is founded in Farringdon in 1900. It's not until Margaret Beckett is in the cabinet that it is able to affect those changes. It had formed governments before then, but the minimum wage and House of Lords reform had, had evaded it. The minimum wage in particular, not only as a point of principle, was a huge deal, but it felt, you know, when, and I, I don't know whether you feel the same, but when... And you hinted at this when people talk about the Blair era as being almost a continuity Thatcher government. Huh. The minimum wage is always the first thing that I would cite as a former member of staff as proof that Absolutely. the Tories would never have brought that in. The, the people who say those things have no recollection of Margaret Thatcher's government. I mean, um, one of the advantages I have in my life is that I spent five years shadowing Social Security when Margaret Thatcher was in power and then followed by John Major. And I mean, with it, they were cutting benefits to the poor and, and the disabled every year and on one year they, they literally they had a big piece of social security legislation they literally cut every benefit from the maternity grant to the death grant taking in widows along the way and people with disabilities and people say we weren't any different than that come on so when you when you set in the minimum wage and i, I oh, this is purely off memory I think it was set at £3.60 an hour and £3.20 for the under-21s or something like that. And I think the trade unions wanted it to be around £5 an hour. I know there was a low-pay commission set up and things like that. When you're bringing in something like that, and there was obviously huge resistance to it, not just from the Conservative Party and elements of the media, but elements of the business community and, and small businesses who are worried they might not be able to pay this thing. How do you set a rate that is fair to all sides? And well, what were the behind? That was part of the genius of the plan. We didn't set the rate. The Low Pay Commission did. And the Low Pay Commission had representatives from, you know, people who, who studied, um, people who were economists, people who were from the business community, people who were from the trades unions. They set the rate. Um, or oh, they recommended the rate. Uh, and, and that was um, a very good thing. But to be fair to everybody, I mean, the reason it took so long was because there was huge opposition to it in the trade union movement for a long time. And, and it was unison, it was a campaign. I, uh, oh God, I've, I've forgotten his second name, Bernard, who was the AGS of, of what is now unison and was then Newpy. It was a brilliant campaign, a lovely man. Fought tooth and nail and that union, um, uh, Alan as well, I mean, and the whole swathe of people in the leadership of that union fought within the trades union movement to get acceptance of the principle. So by the time we got to the Blair government, within the, the, the Labour movement, the principle had been accepted and it was policy. 
And a lot of people in the business community had begun to see because, you know, there were all those terrible scandals of people earning a pound an hour or sometimes even less. Um, And uh, so there was a a distinct feeling. The Conservative Party fought it hard, of course, but the business community as a whole. Now, you were right. There are lots of people in the small business community who were worried about it. And that's completely understandable. But um, the business community had accepted it. It was only the Conservative Party who were really tooth and nail approach. They claimed it would cost two million jobs, which was all complete nonsense. Um, and, and one of the things I rem- one of the reasons I remember it so well is because was, I was being driven by a very nice guy. Well, all my drivers were, were lovely. Um, but he said to me that the week that it came in that they had a family friend, a woman on fairly low pay. And the, when the minimum wage came in, she got something like an extra hundred pounds, hundred and fifty pounds a month. And you know, when your income is, is is at rock bottom as theirs was, that is a life transforming change. And twinned with things like tax credits, it, absolutely it, for the people that benefited from both, it, it was a huge redistributive early yep. success for Labour. Yeah. Um, th- that first term and 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 your memories of that. I mean, it's almost like reminiscing about a cup final or, you know, the Beatles in a way, but 1997, particularly for people like you that had served under a previous Labour administration and then had that whole period in opposition and all the heartache that goes with that, to win and to win so big. And it's Mm. an election victory like no other really in British history. It hasn't been surpassed since. What are your memories of that time and of that night? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, the night, <laughs> we were stuck in our own count. We didn't get a result until four o'clock in the morning. Um, so it was all going on, but not <laughs> but not in my constituency. Um, but one of the things I, I do vividly remember, well, two things in particular I'd pick out. First of all, we'd collapsed into bed, um, the thing being over, and the phone went about one o'clock, I think it was. And they said, could you be in Downing Street at half past five? Um, and I was like, oh, I suppose I could. <laughs> and at half past six, I was in the Department of Trade and Industries, Secretary of State. Um, that's a, perhaps a slight exaggeration, but not much. Um, so I remember that. But the other thing I remember, I, I, uh, I think it was might have been the next day, but I remember I was coming down the Whitehall in my ministerial car, um, and. Uh, there was a woman in the car, and it was quite heavy traffic. The woman in the car alongside looked around, saw me, and she grabbed a red jacket from next to her and waved it frantically. <laughs> and shortly afterwards, I had to go, I, I carried out an engagement that had been made by, by my predecessor to do an, an industrial visit, um, trade visit to Japan. Um, but it was very shortly after, and they invited me up into the cockpit. And the pilot said to me, you know, we were away when the election day happened. He said, and we've come back, but he said, everybody's so happy. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, it, it was fantastic. I, I mean, it must have been, it must be the most popular Labour's ever been. Yes, it probably was. Yeah. And I, I remember I went to the department and um, some of the staff would, would sort of line the staircase to clap me in. I mean, they're wonderful memories. I mean, for politicians, when politics can be so harsh, and when it can be so difficult, personally, politically, those special moments must be so vivid. One of the other things I remember well is that um, I found it 
uh, you know, I used to get this vast number of, of boxes with lots and lots and lots of letters, lots of correspondence. Um, and uh, so, this is, this, is, this is quite a struggle. Is there quite so much of it? And then one of my private office sort of said gently, um, well, actually, um, it, it wasn't like this before. <laughs> you know, we didn't, we didn't have all this massive correspondence under the previous government, but we do now. <laughs> and that, what, what, and when you, is that because that was effectively fan mail? Uh, not necessarily fat men in lots of it was wanting us to do things, you know, um, but um, no, I think it's just there was there was an enormous amount of work coming in. And and I think people perhaps had stopped bothering to send the previous government things. I just don't know. I don't know what it was. I remember hearing at the time that uh, when Labour come in in 1997, I think it's Robin Butler is allocating the grace and favour accommodation. And he apologises to you and your husband, Leo, for giving you such a small one-bed flat. And I think you said at the time, the hallway was bigger than your home at the time. Well, certainly than our flat in London. <laughs> but yeah, uh, um, we we used to have re receptions and things there, you know. Um, and uh, I would say to people, you know, they said, this is, this is a one-bedroom flat without, I'm afraid, an ensuite bathroom was the, was the phraseology. Um, but I mean the the uh, yeah the 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 living room alone was was bigger by far than, than our sort of uh, little flat in in London the sort of broom cupboard flat um, and yeah I think the hall was as well all the rooms in that flat were were huge. It must have been incredible to for that change when you've been and you've been an opposition MP that whole time to yeah. go well, from. I lost in 79, but I, yes. when, I, when I came back in 83, then I was in opposition after that. And actually, when you were MP for Lincoln, I um, I have a confession to make. I was the organiser for Lincoln many years ago. Oh, right. And would occasionally work out of the Lincoln Labour Club, in which were at that point, so this is around 2007, 2006, 2005, old election addresses from when you were oh. Margaret Jackson. And I, I am not ashamed to say that I pilfered a few and have them in a box in at the back of a wardrobe here. So I I have some of your old campaign literature, should you wish to be reunited with it. That's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> Do you keep stuff like that? A bit. Um, you know, you, you always keep the odd one or two. Where it all is, heaven only knows, in the garage probably. And when, you, obviously, you first stood as, and, and held, uh, held um, you know, uh, the Lincoln seat as, as Margaret Jackson, and then you're, you're back as Margaret Beckett, obviously because you become married. Was that something you ever thought of not doing? Did you think, well, I've established myself as Margaret Jackson, now. I'm going to stick to that? Well, we had a conversation about it, because um, various people said to me, you know, you've established an identity as Margaret Jackson. And I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, my mother asked me the other day, what happened to that nice Margaret Jackson? Because she thought you were rather good. <laughs> and I had to explain to her that you actually were back. Um, uh, so several people said, you know, whatever you do, keep your maiden name. But and we discussed it. But uh, it was there were a couple of of things. One was we thought probably my father-in-law wouldn't understand. Um, but then Leo had a, a, a thought that well, actually Beckett is further up the voting paper, which it is. 
and it does make a difference. So that was a clinching argument. Yep, that's it. Right, I'll change my name. You should have married a, a man with a surname A. That would have been ideal. <laughs> Andrew Adonis, maybe. Well, maybe. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about the 1994 leadership contest, because that must have been so hard to, for, you know, your deputy leader at the time, John Smith passes away. Just the shock to the party, to the country, to a group of friends and, and close colleagues, having to run a leadership contest against the backdrop of that death must have been so difficult. I mean, it, in a way, the whole thing must have felt slightly inappropriate. Well, first of all, of course, we had the European elections. I mean, John died on the eve of, uh, of a set of European elections. And uh, one of the things that um, when, when I became deputy, John said to me, I want you to be a real deputy. I didn't quite know what that meant, but anyway, I very soon discovered what he meant was he had a very clear view that there are these things that only the leader can do and that the leader must do, which is about, you know, getting and, and shaping your vision for the future and so on. But there were lots and lots and lots of routine things and meetings and things that the leader always did. And it was like sort of, so you'll do all of those and I'll do only the ones that I think are really essential. Um, and he put me in charge of all campaigning as well. Um, and so as it happens, we had been, I was absolutely involved in the planning for the European election campaign. And we had planned to, to do it as a dry run for the following, because it's the only other nationwide election. Um, uh, and so we planned to do it as a, as a dry run for the gen then general election. So it, it, was, it wasn't too bad in that I knew what was supposed to be happening and why, but it's just that I had to do it instead of John doing it. Um, and, uh, and what I said was that, you know, we must absolutely must not have any campaigning for the party leadership um, until after John's funeral. And, you know, after those things had been settled, basically. Now, whether everybody obeyed it, that stricture is quite another matter. But, you know, um, that wasn't necessary. But you're right, it was, it was an odd feeling because I was doing PMQs every week and that sort of thing, you know. Um, and, and during the campaign, um, um, being the, the key person to do all the interviews. Um, so it was a bit strange from that point of view. You were really good at PMQs. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. Thank you. I mean, you're <laughs> superb at it. You know, there, there is sort of footage out there if people search well enough. But one of the great performers at the dispatch box and just a really great, calm way of of holding a government to account. And it's a shame that we didn't see more of you getting to do that, really. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, I did enjoy it. Um, and, and there was one day I remember uh, that we, we decided we were going to try and put John Major on the spot about VAT. Uh, and we discussed it back and forth and said, you know, I'll challenge him and of course he won't. And, and then over lunchtime, because this was in the morning, over, I suddenly thought, what happens if he says yes? <laughs> yeah. And so my advice to anybody who's doing that thing is always, whatever you do before you finish, think about what you'll do if you get the answer you're not expecting. And I came to the conclusion that if he did, there was, you know, I knew what would happen. The house would explode with laughter. Everybody would go, go nah, 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 nah. you weren't <laughs> expecting that, were you? Um, and it, it would be a hit and you would look silly, but there was nothing to be done about it. You know, you, you just have to take it if that's what happened. Um, and, and think of a way to, to take it on. But anyway, fortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> that is such good advice because you, I can think of moments. 
I remember Tony Blair outfoxed William Hague with a similar thing once, and I think Cameron did it to Ed Miliband. And you can't help... The problem is, because of the way that Parliament is set up and broadcast, you watch it as a, as a tennis match. It's a form yeah. of kind of political sport. And as a viewer, wherever your own political allegiances are, when you get a moment like that, if you do, it's impossible not to go, well, they won that one. You know, it, somewhere on a chalkboard, that counts for something, however small. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you just have to, you know, you have to understand. You know, the leader of the opposition is, at the moment, it's particularly important perhaps to say this, the leader of the opposition is supposed to lose at Prime Minister's question time. The Prime Minister has all the cards. The leader of the opposition has only got a limited number of questions. Once they've had their allocation, they can't come back. They're not supposed to make any statements. They're only supposed to ask questions. All the cards are in the Prime Minister's hands. Did you have any other approaches or techniques for PMQs then? I remember sometimes William Hague would only ask five questions so that Tony Blair wouldn't get to use his big punchline at the end or he'd skip around letters of the alphabet to try and you know, fox him. I think Hague had a unique approach to it. Were there any tricks of the trade that you had or any rules? Um, I didn't particularly, no, I didn't particularly do that. I always, what I tried to do was to be as succinct as possible um and and to really kind of you know get to the thing that you wanted to you wanted to um expose them on one thing you were really good at was that, that i think they struggle to deal with you you know there are certain opponents that prime ministers like who they can drag into a bit of a scrap and i think cameron enjoyed going up against ed miliband and having ed balls there and i think blair and Hague, as much as they probably kind of feared each other there was a kind of sense that was quite pugilistic but you can never be drawn. You were never drawn into a fight. So they could never they could never make it messy with you. I don't know if that was something you were aware of. Not particularly, no. Um, but yeah, and, and of course, the part of the other thing is that uh, I had been politically um, John uh, Major's opposite number through a number of portfolios as it happened, because when he got his first ministerial job, he was shadowing social security. And I'm sorry, he was he was doing Social Security and I was shadowing Social Security. So we had a lot of, of history of being on opposite sides of the dispatch box um, on the same subject. So I was sort of accustomed to being up against him. That might have helped. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then in 1994, you're, you're acting leader of the opposition, you're acting leader of the Labour Party, you're standing for the deputy leadership and the leadership. Um, 
in retrospect, do you think you'd have stood a better chance of becoming or remaining deputy if you'd have just stood for the deputy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people more or less said, you know, you're guaranteed to get the deputy if you only stand for that. I didn't want to. Um, for, you know, I'll be quite frank about it. Um, there were two reasons, really. I mean, I, I stood for it because I was prepared to do it if that's what the party wanted. But I had a feeling the party had got used to the idea of John and me as a leadership team. And I had a feeling that they would want a new leadership team so that, um, you know, they would be think, looking to move on. Um, and and also, uh, you know, I, I was confident that the relationship with Tony wouldn't be the same. Not, I mean, we got on perfectly well, but uh, until I stood against him, uh, I'm very pleased about that. But um, there was no way that Tony was going to be saying, look, all these things a leader normally does, you know, you do, um, because I don't need to do them it was it, you know he was bound to be going to do all that sort of thing himself so it was going to be a very very different job with probably less real work and real influence in it but all the um all the sort of um dog's body stuff you know so it, i thought it wasn't going to be the same job at all and also I, I, perhaps at this stage in my life and career i can be quite blunt about it tony had two best friends Peter and Gordon. And I thought you'd have one looking over one shoulder and one looking over the other. <laughs> One's looking, are they looking at each other over each other's shoulder or are they protecting him from both sides? Well, they certainly would, would both have been wanting to, um, you know, have much more influence and, and a role than me. So I thought, I thought I would be well out of it, but John Prescott would probably kill me for saying that. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty brutal assessment, really, that... When you're saying you think the party would have wanted to move on, you'd only been deputy leader for two years. And obviously, this leadership election is, is triggered by the sad death of John Smith. But Labour was making progress from the election in those two years. Oh. It was further on in the polls. It was more likely to win. I mean, just dealing with John Smith and what what if in 1997, do you think Labour would have won with John Smith? Oh, yes, definitely. Paddy Ashcroft told me after John had died that the, the night before John died, literally, we had a, a fundraising gala dinner. And, you know, John was, um, there was media going in and, and that kind of thing. And Paddy Ashcroft told me that he's seen John on the evening news. And he said to his wife, I mean, just look at him, you know, you can see he's a prime minister. And how would, how would history have been different had Labour won with John Smith in 97? Do you think the victory would have been as big and Labour would have stayed in office for so long? How would his administration have differed from, from the Blair and Brown years? Really hard to judge. I mean, um, I mean, actually, the, um, the European elections, immediately after John had died, we got an even bigger result than in, uh, in 1997. Um, in fact, so big, and I perhaps shouldn't say this, but there was one person who won, and when the media asked about him, nobody in party headquarters knew who he was. <laughs> so little had we expected to win that seat, um, which was quite awkward. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was there was tremendous warmth towards John. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, I mean, we might not have won with the same margin by then, um, but because, you know, it was, it was a completely different uh, approach. But yes, I'm sure we would have, have won. And when you announced that you're standing for the leadership in 1994, now that whole election is is seen through the lens of, of Blair and Brown and the deal and Granita and what it does to Labour history from that point on. How did Tony Blair take it when you told him that you were going to stand? 
wasn't terribly pleased. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I think certainly the people around Tony, shall we say, what they wanted was a coronation. They didn't really want anybody to stand against him. Or if anybody did, they wanted it to be somebody who he could absolutely, you know, beat hollow. Um, which indeed he did. Um, you know, so uh, no, they were they were not happy at all. But there you go. And did, he say, did he did he ever pick up the phone and say, "Look, Margaret, I'm come on, you know, look, no, don't no. stand against me. I'll make you foreign secretary, or you know, whatever you want. But come on, let's not let's not have no, a row." No, he, he he never did. I I did get various um, menacing messages, but um, uh, no, Tony never spoke to me about it. He says um, in his book when he's considering the uh, the outcome of the deputy leadership, where obviously you're standing for the leadership and the deputy leadership. Um, I, I wrote the quote down. He, he says about the, the the possibility of you becoming deputy leader as opposed to um, John well, you Prescott. See, this is news to me because one of the other things I don't do is I don't go through any of these books looking to see what they say about me. So go on. Well, here we go. I'm about <laughs> to. Something I don't know now. Years after it was published. Here we go. He says, I wasn't so sure about Margaret. I liked and respected her, but if things got really ugly, I wasn't sure she would step up and throw a protective cordon around me, whereas John Prescott, I thought, would do so. I mean, does that, is that fair? Uh, well, I, I know he was because one of my my own staff heard it being said. One, I know he was being told that I wasn't trustworthy. Um, so, you know, uh, it's nice of him to put it like that. But is that that you weren't politically trustworthy, or, or you didn't think it was going to you go through his wallet or anything like that? No, no, no politically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the thing is, um, I, I would you you would not have been able to rely on me to say something was right that I thought was totally wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I would, um, I'd go quiet and I accept the collective decision making and so on. But um, I would always fight my corner for what I thought we ought to do, um, even if it it wasn't uh, always comfortable. So they, they may have thought I would be less accepting of some of the things they wanted to do than John Prescott would have been. He wasn't like that either. <laughs> he makes you foreign secretary late on in his premiership. Which, according to all the accounts, was was a real surprise to you. Absolutely. I had no idea. I mean, um, normally, like everybody, well, for a start, the media always. I remember thinking the same thing about Tony Newton, actually, who was my opposite number for a while. Every time there was a reshuffle, and the media has a reshuffle every July. The Prime Minister doesn't necessarily, but the media always do. Um, and uh, when when the Tories were in power, they would always say, and of course Tony Newton will go because I mean he's been there for ages. And I thought, well, I mean, why does anybody keep him? Like, oh, they kept him because he was good at his job, and and he didn't cause trouble. Um, and they always said, you know, and of course Margaret Beckett will be will be going in this resh this reshuffle. And so you know, a lot of the time I thought, well, probably I would be, but as it happened, quite fortuitously, that particular year, I thought he was less likely to sack me than normal because I'd had a very hectic end of the year. I remember I was at Cabinet in, in sort of fairly early November, um, and I asked Hilary Armstrong, who was the um, chief whip at the time, wh when we were going to meet close to Christmas, and she told me. So at the end of the Cabinet, I said, oh, by the way, can I just say to everybody, um, happy Christmas, because from, from here on in, I shall be in... Um, 
I can't remember what the sequence was. I think it was, uh, I, was I was in Brussels doing the sugar negotiations. Then I was going to Montreal to do the climate change negotiations, which paved the way. If we hadn't got agreement in Montreal, there would have been no Paris deal because there would have been nothing to discuss. There was no follow on to the Kyoto Protocol. So I went from, from the um, sugar negotiations in Brussels to Montreal to, for climate change. And then I went to Hong Kong for the World Trade Organization um, negotiations. Um, so, you know, I shan't be seeing any of you until we get back just before Christmas. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and I'd, I had heard, um, nobody said anything much to me, but I had heard it said by one of my colleagues that Tony had said at Cabinet that I'd done a, a tremendous job on, particularly the, cap, the, the uh, agriculture policy negotiations. Um, and so, you know, I thought, probably I was less likely to be sacked than that reshuffle than in some of the previous ones. But I had no idea what he would do, um, whether he would leave me at DEFRA or whether he would move me. And, and I was quite sanguine about it. So I said to him, actually, I've no idea. But if you want to leave me at DEFRA, you know, I don't mind. And he said, I want you to go on working on, on climate change and making it a, a big, important feature of, the, of government policy. But I want you to do it at the Foreign Office. And what did you say? Uh, Something four-letter and not, not very polite. <laughs> and how did it, but you weren't telling him to F off. That was just like a, a surprise <laughs> exclamation. Oh, yes. And how, did he, take, how did he take it? He, he giggled, as I recall. <laughs> I mean, usually people say they know if they're going to get fired because you get invited to the Prime Minister's office in the Commons. They don't make you walk up Downing Street for a dismissal. So if you're invited to come in through the front door... You probably knew you were safe. Well, I, I don't know. I didn't think about it particularly from that point of view. But taking on that brief at that time, I mean, it's one of the great officers of state. You were at the time only the second woman to hold a great office of state. The only previous yes. one being Margaret Thatcher as prime minister. Yeah. So the first Labour woman to hold a great office of state. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know what goes through your mind when you get made foreign secretary. You'd been an experienced cabinet minister for, for many years until then. Did that feel, even within that distinguished career, significant and special? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was quite a shock. Um, uh, it, it just hadn't it just hadn't occurred to me, you know, I hadn't thought about it. Um, and uh, I remember uh, I, I went back to my own department to pick up my stuff. Um, well, back to DEFRA, that is. Um, uh, where my private secretary greeted me with um, uh, afternoon foreign secretary. Um, and, uh, but, and as I was leaving the building to go straight off to the foreign office, uh, I ran in on the pavement, I ran into one of my um, officials who'd been one of the um, experts on sugar negotiations, tremendous guy. They were, we had a great team um doing those negotiations and i said this is your fault <laughs> you lot did all did such a good job in the neg in negotiations that's why i'm going to the foreign office and he giggled and he said they won't know what's hitting them <laughs> well did you know what hit you because people are fascinated with i think particularly the treasury and the foreign office they, they feel almost like republics they have their own power structure and their own culture and they feel there's a kind of secrecy and an old fashionedness about them. I don't know if that's something you felt, whether it was compared to being DTI or DEFRA, that the Foreign Office has a kind of grandeur about it. Yes, I, I think that's true. And one of the things that I thought 
I found, um, well, first of all, I had a warning from uh, somebody I'd met on the circuit, uh, who was a senior foreign office official, that, that there were people in the foreign office who didn't think a woman ought to be foreign secretary. <gasps> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my uh, word. And this is 2006, seven. Absolutely. It surprised me slightly. Um, uh, and, and she didn't mean everybody, but, you know, so there, there were, you know, there were be senior people who do not think you should be there. Um, but of course, I had a sort of, a, I had a, a, a baptism of fire, which, which really kind of got me off to a flying start because Tony appointed me on the Friday afternoon and I was in Washington, I think it was. Yes, Washington on the Monday for a meeting of the Iran negotiating group. So that was the foreign ministers of uh, Russia, China, France, Germany, um, America and, and myself. Um, and the, we, were having, we were due to have dinner together to talk about the, the deal that we were d discussing to offer Iran so that they would stop pursuing um, nuclear enrichment. Um, and uh, so initially it was drinks ministers on their own um, and officials were outside and they said to me, it'll be all right, you know, be about half an hour over drinks. You've read the brief anyway. And after half an hour, you know, it'll, it'll be you and us as well. And so you'll be fine. Um, so I went into these drinks and about two hours later, we <laughs> um, and all the civil servants were there white faced, especially my, nothing civil servants hate more than their ministers being off their leash and they don't know what they're saying. And I suppose mine were probably particularly petrified. I don't know. But um, uh, basically what had happened was that Condi had, had got an agreement to move the American position dramatically. Um, and so that's why we were there talking for two hours. And then we, we, went, uh, we went into dinner and the, the conversation went on. And it all went fine, I thought. Um, and uh, so it was, it was quite a sort of baptism of fire. Um, and in fact, it probably must have gone all right because they asked me to chair the next meeting of that group. And it's, the Foreign Secretary has the elements. It's the closest thing to Prime Minister in many ways. You're dealing with other senior governments abroad. It's Britain on the global stage. Mm. Did you enjoy that element of it? Yes, I did. Yes. Well, I, I thought about it quite a lot because one of the things that, you, you know, you're always conscious of at the Foreign Office is that there are people in that building who who know to their fingertips about the area of the world that, that they have areas of the world, if you like, that they've been responsible for speak, probably speak the language and all that kind of thing. And you think, well, they're all these tremendous experts. So what can a minister bring to that? And I came very quickly to the conclusion that what a minister could bring was the personal relationships that you can develop with um, others, you know, other presidents or prime ministers or um, foreign secretaries. Um, and that's what I um, concentrated on. Uh, if I'd concentrated rather more on the British media and less on, on my job, um, I, I might have lasted there longer. But uh, as it was, I concentrated on building good relationships, which on the whole, I have reason to think I did because um, you know once you don't you're not in the job anymore you don't, they don't have to, have to ask you to do things but people went on being in touch for quite a long time. I was working for Labour at the time in the East Midlands region of course you were and still are one of the MPs for, for Labour in the region I remember the the Lebanon war starting and mm -hmm. 
one of those things when you're working for a political party and your friends in the pub are saying, why aren't Labour talking about this? And I just remember there was a period of time where it felt like the government wasn't vocal. Now, as a member of staff, I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't employed by the government, I was employed by the party. And it's one of those things where, you know, your loyalty to the party pulls you through. You say, well, I'm sure there's stuff going on. I mean, what's your re recollection of that? Because th there was a perception at the time that perhaps the British government wasn't particularly vocal about what was happening. Yeah, I know. And <clears throat> actually, it's a really interesting example, I, I think. I found it interesting. There are moments, and it can happen under any government, there are moments when the media decide what it is you've got to do. Um, and that was one of them. Um, and and I've, I remember another one. And, you know, John Sargent, who was the BBC, long, long serving, very respected correspondent. I remember him saying this about um, the fuel uh, fuel strike. Yes. He said, and, and every day he said, um, we're, we're there, we're all there at the press conferences and we're all demanding that the government make this pledge. And we know you can't. You know, we, 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 and we know it would be absolutely the wrong thing for you to do. But there we all are hammering away, you know, and saying, well, you know, you, you must commit yourself to doing this uh, government. And he said, and then I suddenly I thought, oh, but wouldn't it be terrible if they did? Because, you know, it is absolutely the wrong thing to do. But it's the story. You know, it's the story. But but it would be terrible if they gave way to it. It was one of those. And the media decided that we had to use. And I'm not even sure I can remember that, that we had to use a particular phrase about unconditional ceasefire uh, on, on both sides. Um, and if you didn't use that, it didn't matter what else you said. You know, it, it probably wasn't even reported, which would be one of the reasons why people like you. But, you know, you could say we want to see an end of, of violence. You could see we want to, um, you know, no, no more bloodshed. It didn't matter what, what you said. And, and we were, all of us, to be fair, the Russians and everybody as well, we were all saying we want the conflict to stop. But unless you use those words, and what we knew was that um, the particular form of words conveyed the impression that it was really the Israelis who had to stop. That Hezbollah didn't necessarily have to, they were only poor little Hezbollah, but the Israelis had to stop any military action. And we knew that, it, I, I used the analogy to somebody once, that if somebody, if one of your friends is in a very bitter divorce, you know, uh, and you're hearing things from both sides and you're trying maybe to, to be a bit of a peacemaker and, and help to, to calm things down, but there's, there may be a phrase and if you use it, your friend will think, that's it. You haven't got a bloody clue. You do not understand what is going on. And after that, that's it. You, you can't have any, can't be any good because you shut out, you don't understand. And using that particular phrase would have meant the Israeli government was like, oh yeah, typical. Well, no, nobody understands. Uh, and they'd have stopped listening. And we were able, in fact, to, to mitigate things because they had not stopped listening to us. Um, and, and of course, in the British media, it was all kind of, we've lost all influence in the Middle East. You know, nobody wants anything to do with us anymore. At that precise, precise period, one of the most senior and experienced Middle East foreign ministers said to me, you, you, you have to stay involved. We need your wisdom and experience. I don't, don't think he meant me, he meant the British government, you know, the Foreign Office. We need your wisdom and experience. And all of the people, all of the international visitors who were all going into Lebanon and make, making pronouncements and all that kind of thing, they were all going in via us because we were the only people who were trusted by both sides enough to have 
a, a bit of a rite of passage. So it was all nonsense. But it was, and I remember doing the Today programme and whoever it was, the interviewer said, so you're happy for bloodshed to continue? And I thought, well, I thought various four-letter things that I won't sully your ears with. But, I mean, it was ridiculous because we were calling all the time for the conflict to stop. But And if you didn't say that phrase that they decided was the phrase, everything was dismissed. It's a very useful lesson in politics, actually. And as I say, it can happen to any government, and it does. And, and Labour's relationship with the Middle East, I think particularly of Iraq and then the Corbyn years, Israel and Palestine, for certainly the last five or six years, but it's sort of a dominant theme in Labour politics in a way that back then I would just never have guessed would have happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the situation has deteriorated very badly since then. I mean, one of the things that Tony gets no credit for at all, Tony tried very, very, very hard to get George Bush to take, take um, you know, an, an intervening and, and science stance and, and pursuing American policy. And, and I think Bush was interested in, in doing what Tony had done in Northern Ireland, but maybe it's impossible. Maybe an American president never can, I don't know. But he, he was happy for Condi to do it, but um, he himself just didn't engage in the way that Tony and, and um, the Irish prime minister did in Northern Ireland. So they didn't make the progress. Um, security and issues around intelligence are still something really close to your heart. You're the chair of the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy. What do you think in the year 2021 is the greatest threat to our security in the UK? Well, there are there are half a dozen that the government has identified as tier one risks. One of them is a pandemic. Because, you know, we've had this one and hopefully we're, we're getting to the stage where we may be able to overcome it. But um, I think one of the things that isn't is difficult for any government to assess and to get right is that what you tend to do is to focus on the threats that you know about. You know, are you worried about China? Are you worried about Russia? These are, are potential perceived threats. But sometimes there are things that just come out of the blue that are actually sort of accidents. They aren't maliciously driven by foreign states or whatever. They're the things that can catch you on the hop. The unknown unknowns, to quote Donald Rumsfeld. But I suppose of them all, I would, I would say climate change is the biggie. Uh, because one of the things that, uh, that is... Um, so alarming about climate change and thank goodness people are recognizing it now more than they ever did in the past and i remember explaining this to the cabinet at one point you can get to a tipping point uh you know at which point let, let's say the, the classic is greenland ice all the greenland ice melts or something you won't know you've got to it until it's already gone mm. there is there's nothing that tells you this is a tipping point you you may say this could be, we could be approaching a tipping point. We must try at all costs to avoid it. But you don't know how big a risk you're running. I tried to get the department, actually, but it was too early in the, in the science to, for, the, for it to be available, to do me a, a map of the, of the United Kingdom with the, you know, what, the, what our um, boundaries would be, what our coastline would be um, if some of these things happened. You know, I was planning to go to the cabinet and say, there you are, Charles, there's Norwich on sea. <laughs> 
anyway, they said this. They said the science wasn't in a strong enough state to do that at that point in time. So it was a bit of a shame. It would have been a nice, um, nice way of telling the cabinet that it was really something that in in each of their departments they had to take seriously. I wonder what, what I mean, you've you've had such a, a distinguished and and long and successful career in politics in so many different areas. Just I want to really get the, the advantage that of that that wonderful, amazing career in a number of ways. Firstly, just with Labour. Why do you think Labour have never elected a woman to lead it? I think it's just it's just accident. I mean, uh, to my mind, the first woman prime minister should have been Barbara Castle, not Margaret Thatcher. And, and that was accident in the Conservative Party. I mean, don't let anybody kid you that the Conservatives set out to elect a woman. They didn't. And what's more, when they had elected her, they were, nobody remembers this. She was a terrible leader of the opposition. She was so bad. It was embarrassing. She was pathetic at Prime Minister's Question Time. And when she made a speech, it was before, especially before they got her voice to lower her voice, she would gabble her way through it and, and unkind people on our benches. Because I always say, if you got rid of all the other blood sports, it'd still be the House of Commons. Unkind <laughs> people on our side would shout faster, faster, and she'd go faster and gabble her way through her speech. Um, and they were horrible about her. They called her the cultured pearl, uh, which was really a, quite a vicious um, uh, description. Uh, and, you know, she was really, really terrible. But um, I forgot why I got into that story. About why Labour had never elected why, a female that, leader. So, so in the end, um, they, they couldn't stomach Ted Heath. And they felt, I think, quite bitter about the fact that none of the men would run against Ted Heath in a way which was really potentially to bring him down. And they were very angry about it. And she had, you know... She had good advisors, um, and I think uh, whether they really knew what they were doing um, is another matter. Uh, and they certainly didn't set out to have a woman. They they drifted into it through circumstances. And similarly, the Labour Party has never found itself in a position where there was quite the right person at quite the right time. But you know, having said that, um, well, look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, all those years of saying that you can't have a woman because, you know, they haven't built up the experience and all this kind of thing. The most experienced presidential candidate probably in American history and the most expected to win. Didn't happen. And did you, have you ever experienced sexism in the Labour Party? Did you experience it when you stood in 94? Um, I, yes, I suppose I did. Uh, but I mean, nobody said nobody said you can't have a woman leader. They just said, you know, we, we've got one Margaret, we don't want another one. <laughs> really? Was that a kind of common refrain? I mean, semi, no, but it was, it was a semi-joke. But, you know, to be fair to them, uh, you know, they said, there's Margaret Thatcher, you know, we want somebody different. And a smart young man was different from Margaret Thatcher. My word. I mean, but I mean, you, you are different from some. Right. You are different from Margaret Thatcher in so many ways. One of, my, one of my jokes in my in my leadership speeches in the in the hustings was that it would give our people, um, it would give the Tories an opportunity to march shouting Maggie, 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 out, out, out. After <laughs> the joke, but it didn't make them vote for me. And what are the major changes you've seen? I mean, you served Wilson and Callan, and we haven't talked about that at all. What are the you think that? the major changes you've seen in British politics since you were first elected in Lincoln? 
Well, there are so many. It's, uh, I mean, the, the whole Europe saga is one um, where, you know, we weren't initially in Europe when I was first elected. Um, and then we, we became very, very influential um, in the European Union. Uh, we really did maximize <clears throat> our power and influence. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've come out of it. I think, I think one of the things that has perhaps changed more dramatically than, than any of those big things is the whole social media thing, which is transforming the, the, the way that MPs can, can work and have to work, um, like it's transforming everything else in life. Um, and, uh, you know, the way in which um, there's such total exposure. I mean, nowadays, um, you sort of recommend people who want to come into politics to take a look at their social media records and expunge them or whatever. I never, and, and also, because there were so few women when I was first elected, I never had to cultivate the media. I never had to call. It was very bad for me, I'm sure, because, um, you know, I didn't need to. So I didn't. Um, and because, uh, you know, they, they, even then there was a sort of, well, how what can we do on here? Oh, well, we could have a woman. And then you looked around and how many women were there? And there were so few women that even after um, 83, I think, um, up until 87, if they had a photo call for women MPs, you only had to look around. You knew whether we were all there or not. And how do you feel about social media? Do you go on oh, it? No. <laughs> Why not? No, I... Life's too short. <laughs> I, I wish more people agreed. I mean, you know, I, mean, and I remember one of my colleagues a while ago saying, oh, you know, it's wonderful. I can, I can tell everybody what I'm doing all day. And I'm saying, you, you can tell everybody what you're doing all day and every day? Push off. <laughs> I, I, I have to, I freely admit I am scarred. I, I, I don't mean badly, but I am very much affected by being the youngest in a family of powerful women. My mother and my two elder sisters, who are quite a bit older than me. And so everybody had an opinion about what I ought to be doing, which was usually not what I was doing or what I wanted to be doing. And so I grew up absolutely kind of, so if anybody used to say to me, you know, what are you doing? So I said, why do you want to know? <laughs> Everybody always had an opinion about why I should be doing something else and everything was a wrangle. So, you know, that, that is me and, that, and it's bad, I know. Um, but it means that, uh, and you, one of the things that you do learn early on in politics, or if you don't, you should, is if you're not very careful, politics is a way of life. It's neither, I, I get quite impatient with people who talk about well, politicians are just like you know, any other profession. No, they're not. You know, uh, okay, if you're a, um, a much-loved doctor or surgeon or judge or whatever, there's a circle in which you'll be known. But you're not somebody who might be stopped by people when you get on the train and, and abused or whatever. Um, and it's really not the same. And you have to, to preserve some space, both for yourself and for your family and, and friends, because otherwise, you know, it, it will destroy you. It, it easily could destroy you because you could, there are more things that people would like you to do than any human being could do. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's if you don't have any kind of private life at all. So um, when I heard, you know, oh, this is wonderful, there's this thing you can go on Twitter and you have to express everything you want to say in 140 words, I don't think so. <laughs> I think so. 
And then, you know, Facebook, well, you can share all your share all your family photographs. Oh, thanks. We don't, keep them private. we don't even take photographs, Leo and I. He says sometimes, you know, he, he went to China three times and came out without a single photograph. <laughs> you know, what is it interested in really to other people? Uh, you know, here's a photograph of me and so-and-so in Beijing. Oh, yeah, really interesting, yeah. <laughs> well, I agree. Margaret, thank you so much. I, we didn't talk about the Heath or the Callahan years. Uh, it would be great to get you back on at some point in the future to talk about those of you interested in it. But in closing, thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully as things start to open up now and people can move around, it won't be too long before you can go on another caravan holiday. That would be very nice. Do you have anywhere in particular planned? Well, when we caravan nowadays, I mean, we caravan in various places, but nowadays we tend to go to France. Uh, there was a, there was a brief moment when I worried about that because I thought if the French know and hate any British minister, it's the Minister of Agriculture. <laughs> but we managed to get away with it incognito pretty much. Margaret, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Wasn't that Europanzer superb in so many ways? But just for placing Margaret's political life and and the scale of it into a context when Margaret first became a, an MP, Britain had not yet entered the European Union. And here we are in 2021, having left, and Margaret is still an MP. A just remarkable time scale. And so many brilliant answers. All the stuff about reshuffles is great. All the stuff about the pressures on ministers. Why the British government sometimes chooses forms of words that, that may infuriate different elements of the public or indeed the media, I thought was a great insight and so well told. And there's just something about Margaret and her manner. And you can, there's something about, obviously, I think <clears throat> it's always fascinating the people who manage to endure and stay and the stamina they require and the personal qualities that they possess. And I think sometimes in politics we can be fooled by those that are more openly bullish um, and a bit, <clears throat> maybe macho is not the right word, maybe a bit more combative. Margaret Beckett has a particular style, a particular steel, highly dignified, rock solid, really clear thinker really clear about where she stands and the way that she handles herself. And all those things make... That's why she was so good at the dispatch box when she did PMQs. All that, that those sort of ingredients that make up the politician, that make up the person as well, those unique attributes are why she has endured when so many others have not been able to and is still in there, still possesses that, that desire and that hunger to change the world for the better. And of course, has the ability... To, to, to make those, to turn those values into policies or, you know, to, to put her skills to the service of the party, but, but also of the country uh, in the role that she does now. Um, so that was just such a pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, and if, you would, if you've got a recommendation uh, for a future guest or a suggestion, put it in the review and uh, pop it up and uh, I will try and get uh, some of those people booked. For now, I shall leave you to it. What a treat that's been. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.